we hear all these different, uh, you know, opinions flying around and all these different, you know, supposed insights that people have and their analysis. And I just recalling uh, Judges chapter 17, verse 6, that says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is, without a doubt, our culture. It, uh, it is just every man for himself uh, doing uh, whatever they think is best. So, you know, I'll remind you, and I've said it a number of times recently, please, during these days of craziness, review uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and then you know look at Daniel chapter 9 and, and do that like over and over again to see God laying out in Deuteronomy uh, what you know later he says I lay before you today blessings and curses you choose and uh, in Deuteronomy 28 he, he tells the the nation that uh you know, if they will follow him and obey him, then these will be their long list of blessings. If they do not obey him, do not follow him, keep his word, then these are going to be the long list of terrible things uh, that are happening to them. So, uh, you know, here we are in our culture experiencing all of those same things. And the end result was the nation of Israel being taken captive and led away to uh, initially the 10 northern tribes by Assyria and then uh, you know uh, later the remaining two tribes being captured by uh, Babylon uh, all of them existed in uh, captivity in in Babylon uh, for 70 years and that is where Daniel wrote uh, Daniel chapter 9 and he just makes a great confession about um, the realization that they are there as a people because they've rejected God and rejected his word and rejected his law, and now they're experiencing uh, the repercussions of having done that. Uh, so we as a nation are in the process of the downfall. And, uh, you know, these people that act like politics are somehow separated, like, oh, do your church thing, keep politics. It's one and the same. Why? Because it's people. People in the religion, people in the politics, people in the culture. You're talking to people and their behavior and the things they think and believe and do. Uh, these are all one integrated thing. It's, it's you know, the idea of separate, oh, keep your politics over there. Don't bring that into this discussion. Uh, no, that's the problem is your politics are your thinking process, which results in your behavior here in our culture. And you're doing all this junk. You know, it's all one thing. The person, the people need to change. Uh, the behavior is uh, the ultimate expression of those things. But the philosophy and the religion and the politics are, are expressed outwardly in behaviors. And, and that's what needs to change is all the inward stuff so that the outward changes. We're in the process of the decline. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a dramatic fall. That we are experiencing, we're we're plummeting towards destruction uh, presently. So that's why we turn to the Word. We we turn to the Word in order to be 
the remnant uh, that were not part of all of this decay, all of uh, this insanity and deterioration that is going on. We, we look to be governed by God's word and thereby experience his, his blessings uh, in our lives. So we're in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I know that uh, we already covered uh, some of this section, but I'm going to back up to verse 22 and uh, talk about uh, the relationships uh, within the home. So uh, to begin with, uh, he says in verse uh, 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, um, to begin with, um, women are not called to be subject to men. Okay, Sounds like it there, but it's literally saying wives, you have a husband, you need to be in subjection to that husband. You know, there's a very sexist attitude in our culture that sometimes acts like men are superior or lorded over women, and that's not what the scripture endorses at all. Uh, you know, here Paul is telling the church at Ephesus uh, that, you know, wives, if they have a husband, should be in submission to that husband. And I need to be clear for any uh, ladies that may be disturbed by that because of, you know, the atrocities that they have either experienced or witnessed happening, uh, that he's talking about submitting to men who are godly. So within the home, there needs to be this order. So verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, I talked about this last week, and I want to dwell on it a little bit more uh, tonight. Um, the idea of the head is certainly the issue of leadership, but um, it is much more, it, it, and I need to be clear that it is the issue of leadership, but it is much more the idea of source. Okay, um, you know, you talk about certain rivers, uh, you talk about where is the head of that river? Where does it begin? Okay, where did it come from? Right? Follow the Penobscot northward, you're going to come to a place where it dead ends, and that's the headwater. That's where tributaries lead in and the river begins. Okay? Uh, what is the head of woman? We'll trace back to Adam. Woman came from Adam. The headwater, the source of woman is man. The female species came from man, the head, the source. So it is the issue of submission, but it's what is the source, which again, now it fits in a little different when you read, you know, also Christ is the head of the church. He's not just the authority over, he's the source. Okay, that's why we can say very clearly of certain organizations and denominations that make claims that are against Christ. You know, you see certain denominations uh, carrying doctrine which are ungodly, even anti-Christ in their form. I mean, there's lots of nuance that I could get into. I'll just blatantly, you know, talk about like universalist Unitarians. They're not part of the church. That's not Christianity. They've embraced doctrine which isn't Christian. Okay? The source of that organization is not Christ. 
They're not part of the church. You know, I'm sure I'll get an email or two you know, now that I've said that online. But you know, th this statement here uh, is talking about the origin. Certainly the authority and submission he's talking about. But what is the source? You know, source of man, source of church, Christ. Source of wife, source of mother. Man came from Adam. So within that, Christ being the savior of the body, therefore... Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Again, this is within the church. This, this isn't uh, calling women to submit to godless men. Uh, you know, this, this really has no application outside the church. You know, inside an ungodly home, a woman is moment to moment going to have to decide whether it's good, right, and proper to submit to this man because his decisions, his source of existence may, you know, in all likelihood is outside Christ. So this is something that has been abused and applied, you know, in general to women, which the scripture isn't calling for. You know, this is Paul strictly speaking to believers. And saying, you know, there's a clear, you know, run of line here where where we follow the tributaries back and we come to the throne of God who flows into the heart of man, who is your husband, who then leads family through wife. You know, you depart outside that and things get terribly confused all along the way. And then, of course, qualifying factor, verse 25, husbands Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. You can pretty much close the book right there and go home and study that for the rest of your life. Right? A, a, a godly husband is to love and serve his wife and his family the way that Christ served and loved the church. That I mean, what woman couldn't live with that? <laughs> that, that that's a remarkable individual. Right? Even when you're having a terrible day, ladies, and you're, you're you know, behaving in your worst, uh, you know, sinful fleshly form, uh, Christ is going to be able to handle that and love that and guide that and steer that and provide for that into what would correct your relationship. If a husband is, you know, truly connected to that head water, if we think of it that way, of Christ, what flows through him, no matter what turmoil something might be going on in the life and the heart of a wife, uh, he's going to be able to flow into them with Christ. And, and, you know, he even goes that sort of same direction that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. You know, I, I mean, if you've read that in the past and sort of that was like a neat little verse sort of, sort of plugged in there. Yeah, it is, but it, it, it is this idea of the headwater, the flowing downward. I mean, what wife is going to be capable of submitting to a husband when his source is currently himself and his sinfulness and his anger and his rage and who knows what else, right? Fill in the blank. You know, what's flowing out of him isn't cleansing her and washing her and purifying her. It's polluting her. It's making the situation, you know, I, I recently heard that thing again about, you know, trying to 
you know, put the brush fire out with gasoline. It doesn't, you know, doesn't produce anything good. You, know, you, you, as a husband submitted to the Lord, you know, have a great cleansing and uh, you know, nothing will generate a fight uh, faster than patronizing. You know, wife's having a tough day and, you know, come along as unspiritual husband and patronize her for a moment and see, see what that generates, you know, in your flesh, feed the fire. See if you can't create a worse storm than you're already dealing with. When a man is submitted to Christ, you know, and loves your wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, you know, washing, cleansing with the water by the word. That doesn't mean you, you walk into the room and go, I noticed you're just really misbehaving today. So let me just read you a few verses, you know, and just you know. <clears throat> very often what that is, is that the, the, the word of God is affecting the husband in such a way that when said wife is having a hard time, he knows to just keep his mouth shut. The, the word of God is, is telling him how to serve, you know, that this isn't the moment for a sermon. This is the moment, you know, to empty the trash without being asked, or who knows what. You know, the word working in him, flowing through him, is going to sanctify her and her circumstances. And, of course, it should inspire him to pray, you know, and, and minister in that way. The selflessness that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Uh, you know, he's using these physical terms to just paint a picture, spot, blemish, wrinkle, any such thing. And he's, he's you know, using this allegory, metaphor, whatever that is, to say, look, you know, if, if you, like Christ, are ministering to your bride, then he's purifying the church in the process. And we need to be really clear in that understanding that the church is not a, a building or a denomination. That's each individual, collectively as a whole, making up the whole church. Christ is working in each one of them. Whatever denomination they're in, whatever organization they belong to, whatever building they assemble themselves in, Christ working in them is ministering to them and healing them and cleansing them. You know, what are spots, wrinkles, and, you know, any such thing? They're the signs of death, really. It's, it's, it's the deterioration of our physical frame. We're, we're getting older, we're deteriorating, right? Christ removes that. So if you move into the spiritual discussion, that which flows from Christ moves us further away from the decomposition. You know, uh, the the physical frame, the body is going to just continue to break down until it's done. <clears throat> but you know, he Paul talking about the inward man. You know, we've all probably met those dear elder saints that the body is way broken down. But when you sit down, there's just a sweetness that pours out of them, and you think this is a really beautiful individual. <laughs> it just, you know. Physically, they're almost incapable you know, of everything. They, you know, they're just totally almost broken. But, boy, mentally and spiritually, what a wonderful thing. Christ has purified them, is sanctifying them. Now take that direct application, because this is saying to husbands, that's our role. That whatever's going on in 
that dear sister's life, our role is to be selfless and serving in such a way that we are purifying and presenting our wife back to ourselves uh, without blemish. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I have discovered, uh, you know, my wife likes humor. She, she likes funny things. Uh, you know, she, she just soon sit down and watch comedy more than any other film genre. And, uh, she likes, she likes to laugh and, uh, it's easier to steer her out of a, uh, you know, difficult attitude with humor. You know, you just, you know, I, I don't even have an example to describe that, but to just pull her away from whatever she's struggling with, you know, the maturity Christ creates in us when we as husbands submit that, you know, you don't want an angry, upset wife. Like I said, preaching is not the answer. You know, in, in the case of my wife, uh, you know, ministering to her with a love that's in my heart for her with some humor steers her around and we go an entirely different direction. The, these things that Christ do, does in us when this is the direct line, uh, you know, of our lives and uh, how it works with uh, his influence in our, our lives. So husbands, verse 28, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, like like parts of is literally what that means. The members like your fingers and your arms and legs are members of your body, you know, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that inseparable bond that occurs in marriage uh, more what he's referring to is the emotional bond there but spiritually also this is a great mystery but i speak concerning christ in the church nevertheless let each one of you practice excuse me in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband so those two sort of mandates uh, at the end that they're, they're all the way through that message. But the summary in the end, uh, husband, love the wife. Wife, respect the husband. And, and listen, guys, you know, there are a few, a few of us here that are married. Uh, those, I think if you analyze it, Maybe you've got a different opinion, but I think if you really spend some time thinking about it, those are the two areas that break down. Wives feel like they're not loved. Husbands feel like they're not respected. And in the end, that's where the troubles are. Even if the husband is not respectable, if he can feel as though you respect him, <laughs> changes the man, right? Even if the wife is un you know, unloved, or unlovable even, if the husband will demonstrate that he loves her, you know, do what it takes to convince her, it can change her. So, you know, the, the problem is one side breaks down, or maybe both sides, but let's just, let's take one side. 
And so, um, well, let's throw it on the husband. Husband stops loving wife. Wife stops respecting husband because husband doesn't love her or demonstrate that. Well, then you just start that vicious cycle, perpetual motion machine. <laughs> this much energy put into not loving results in that much energy disrespecting and back and forth and back and forth. Total destruction is the end of the thing. It's, it's a really simple thing to just understand, okay, this is the order, like command, that has been given. And I can see the benefits of it, so I need to just do it. Just love the wife. Just respect the husband. You know, he doesn't deserve it, okay? You know, I guess we could sit down and categorize all the areas by which he has lost respect and come to the conclusion that he's not worthy of it. But the command still stands to respect. You know, because we certainly could, you know, do the same thing the other direction. You know, where are all the areas that, you know, uh, she has done things that, you know, would cause the husband to not care for or at least demonstrate and show the affection and love. There's probably we could compile a list there also. So is the wife, is the husband justified in not loving his wife? Certainly not. You know, neither is the wife justified in not respecting her husband. Uh, in this, I believe that the Lord is revealing to us the, the two largest areas of emotional need in one another. Husbands need to be respected. Wives need to be loved. Uh, yes, certainly husbands need to be loved also. Yes, certainly wives need to be respected in their role. Uh, but uh, if, if we will set aside all of our petty differences and simply do what the Lord has commanded us to, the fruitfulness that it produces in our lives is, uh, is boundless. It, you know, it's uh, been said for a long time that you, know, you can take a marriage which started out feeling like you were soulmates, and just so completely compatible and in love with one another and turn it into cellmates who are you know, just living out your time together. That's not what Christ wanted. You know, when he talks about the abundant life that he's offering us, certainly within marriage, uh, that is a truth that he's talking about. Uh, you know, the, 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 just this passage alone where Paul is using the example of marriage in reflection to the church uh, would, would make it seem that we definitely should be uh, looking for this great fulfillment in our marriages. You know, the, the thought that, oh, right, well, you know, I'm a servant of Christ and I'm a child of God and my marriage stinks. But, you know, that's another issue. Uh, the Lord does not want us to live a tormented life that way. And he offers us the answers, love and respect. They're really pretty straightforward issues. So take some time and uh, research more of that uh, on your own and see the, the practical applications. We'll move forward into uh, chapter 6. Uh, begins in verse 1 because we're still talking about these re relationship issues that Paul has brought the church at Ephesus into. He continues with the family. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now this is actually 
I, I should have mentioned that this is part of the reason that I uh, make the points about wives submitting to husbands in the fact that this is really only applicable within the church. You can find certain applications within non-Christian marriages, but it really is only applicable within the church because those people are the only ones that are submitted to Christ and their creator. You know, so so it holds that. Here, it's even more, a little more specific and outright in its explanation when it says children obey your parents. You could almost say, pause, that are in the Lord. This this isn't a call for children to just always obey parents, right? I had a conversation with a woman years ago who uh, her parents were drug manufacturers and uh, had involved her in that whole process. And she had to go through the great dilemma of uh, not only coming to the point where she stopped doing that for them and with them, which the mental and physical abuse was amazing uh, that was going on in this person's life, but uh, she actually had to go as far as turning them in. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't even a thing that she could just turn a blind eye to. It, it needed to be brought to a stop um, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the Lord, and even in her own personal conscience and experience. It wasn't something she could just turn away from. She had to completely disobey her parents, completely disrespect her parents, and then go through the process of having her parents held accountable. Children are not called to obey parents in all things. <laughs> They're called to obey parents in the Lord. Right? Okay, parents, so now consider... Uh, you know, maybe there are occasions where we get into the flesh. And now we're losing our mind in sinfulness. I, I, I hear this happens to certain people. You know, maybe you've heard of it. I'm sure you've probably never experienced it, knowing each of you as I do. We're all incredibly mature Christians and would never falter to any such behavior, but uh, let's just say that that's a reality and happens in certain, you know, families and environments. Do we ever throw down this gauntlet and say, obey your parents? In that moment? When we're in the flesh? Because this passage is absolutely not calling for that. This is calling for children who aren't, right, walking with the Lord, right, might be in the flesh, right? I hear some teenagers behave like that, let's say, okay? <laughs> and they get to a place, but now they've got godly parents who are in the Lord, and they're being called by Paul here to submit to those parents that are in the Lord. That's what this is. This, this, isn't, this isn't parents have an authoritative position in life that you automatically have to bow down to. Right? Now, now, you can, how about this, parents? You can say to children in the moment when you know you're walking in a godly way and what you're asking for is godliness, you can say to them in that position and in that frame of mind, sorry, love you to pieces. 
I know this is really hard for you, but you're going to obey me. Because what I'm asking for is godly. It is right. I'm, I'm not here in the flesh demanding something of you that's sinful. I'm here standing in the Lord telling you, you are going to have to obey me. That, that's something you can do. Now, within that framework, children, godly parents, asking for obedience, the statement made right there, for this is right, and then the verse supporting, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, that doesn't uh, say that you're going to have a long life, which some people have taught. It, it is the idea that when this family model works, when husbands love wives as Christ loved church, and wives submit to husbands that are godly, and children obey godly parents, then they will have a long-term allowance within the land that God has given them, Israel. If they depart from this living, then what's going to happen is God is going to allow their enemies to come in. He's going to allow their culture to deteriorate. They're going to be driven out. They're going to be taken captive and everything's going to be destroyed. So it's much more talking about the fruitfulness of uh, living inside God's parameters. Um, many of us have known godly children who didn't have long lives, who left this life, we would might maybe even say, prematurely. Uh, so did this promise fail? Absolutely not. If we are submitted to Christ, then what we're going to have is a blessing within the time that we have on this earth. If we depart from this framework, uh, we're going to have an entire deterioration of the human race. Here's a really horrible thought. More than 40 million children in Africa right now uh, were born into homes without their fathers. HIV virus alone produced that. That isn't even all the other contributing elements within the culture that took away additional fathers from those homes. The instability that creates within a culture is immeasurable. It's unreal what happens. The Lord tells us that divorce robes or clothes a man in violence. And uh, the startling statistics about the number of individuals who are incarcerated, who grew up in a home without a father. You know, the deterioration of the family is gut-wrenching in what it produces inside the cultures that it happens to. When you have cultures where the homes stay together, uh, you have an entirely different uh, circumstances. Sin always produces the destruction of family. That's an inevitable thing. Uh, the cultures 
that have uh, strong elements of Christianity and uh, obedience to the faith uh, have strong uh, families, um, have, have strong homes. When uh, people depart from worshiping the Lord, the destruction of the family is an inevitable consequence. Uh, he shifts gears a little bit, saying in the family and t- still talking about relationships in four, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Uh, I have witnessed that there are certain people that like to torment children. They, they like to tease them. They, they, they get a kick out. I think we've all probably done that. You know, I'm talking about there are certain people who that is part of their character. They like to tease children, you know, make a promise, you know, here, I got candy for you. And, you know, then the child reaches for it. They don't have it or they hold it up and they just, you know, they, they do a thing where they torment the heart and mind of children. Certainly that has an application, but this is the much broader sense of parenting and not frustrating your children, creating environments and situations where uh, you have a strong sense that the relationship is focused around the provocation of children. And if that is anyone's demeanor and behavior, you really need to consider your heart because the Lord does not do that to us. we're, We're supposed to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father, and God doesn't dangle his promises out in front of us and then pull them away. He also doesn't make it impossible for us to achieve goals. You know, um, the, the goal that the Lord has for us more than anything is that we would have a relationship with him. And uh, he's done everything he could to make sure it's possible for us to have that relationship with him, including he's died. He gave his own life in order that uh, he would have a relationship with us. You know, on top of that, if we will simply uh, submit to him uh, in uh, his uh, authority and his position, then grace covers every other element of our relationship. So whatever our shortcomings might be, his graciousness and his forgiveness covers the rest. You know, if we um, if we have an attitude of perfection and we've set the standard i'm i'm amazed i've run into a few people that have uh, i'm sure i must have this to a degree because i'm a sinful man we all need to examine our heart but i i have witnessed there are some people who have this in a more obvious way they're perfectionists whether you're talking about jobs or sports or academic performance they have a standard of perfection that's relentless and they insist that upon their children and it creates even if those children are succeeding and accomplishing it creates a frustration that they they only have a few choices when they come out the other side of that family when they step out on their own, they can totally reject that environment, that behavior. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to do that. 
or they embrace it themselves and they become the next generation of that same behavior, this impossible standard of perfection. It's a really cruel state of existence. Um, I don't see the Lord uh, presenting that to us. And so we really need to examine, you know, what the Lord might be saying to us in the environment. Um, one of the most difficult men I ever worked for uh, years ago, um, <clears throat> I, I gave notice and, and got done, but I had a conversation with him before I left because uh, he had this standard of perfection and it was impossible. It was just something you could not, you could not do. I look back and I've owned businesses and managed, you know, I was a young man in my twenties and I've owned businesses now and, uh, you know, had employees and managed uh, staff. And, you know, I look back and think, man, I, I, I wish I had, you know, employees that were like me, like I was then. He treated me like dirt. It, it did not matter how hard I worked or what I did. You know, it was just a little bit less than what he would have been capable of. And he was sure to tell everybody that. The standard of perfection that no one could achieve. It was impossible. It was frustrating. It was just sort of thing where everybody, and you know, and he was constantly, you know, embittered and sort of raging about the turnover you know nobody ever stays everybody quits just of course you know because you know no matter how hard anybody works around here no one's achieving what you want them to achieve you know how about how about actually be smart enough to look at the individual not be judgmental but analyze them for what they are and then really think about each day's performance. Oh, wow, look, that person who's only capable of this level gave me this much today. You know, they're performing well according to their stand. You certainly want to set the challenge, raise the bar, and try to draw them into greater and greater performance. But when you set, you know, the place, you know, so high, that no one is capable of frustration. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know, the instruction of the Lord, the love, the grace, uh, the characteristics of Christ. A wonderful example that uh, Paul puts forward there for the church. Continuing in verse 5, we'll go a little further. He references bond servants. Um, and again, just to sort of refresh ourselves, um, people that, let's say, fell into poverty could uh, sell themselves as servants. And uh, it's much more the idea of employment. So, you know, just to use some numbers and throw out there, if you had $10,000 worth of debt, you could go to somebody and say, you know, I'll work for you for a year if you'll cover that debt, which meant you were going to live there with that master and he was going to provide you with food, clothing and shelter and pay off your debt. You know, $30,000, $25,000 of value, right? Because you're getting food, clothing and shelter. 
and they're paying your debt. So you make an employment agreement is essentially what you're looking at. So servants could sell themselves into servitude in this way, and it, it, it was a cultural thing. There, don't get me wrong. There, there are slaves also, uh, that in especially Rome, that Paul is making reference to. But the, the idea of bond servants, we're talking about servants and people who have m mostly put themselves into the issue of being sold in this way. A bond servant would be sold permanently to one master. So, you know, there are many reasons why that would take place. But, uh, you know, one of the simplest understandings is uh, that somebody's debt was so great that it was going to require that they serve one person for the rest of their life. So they would be bound to that master, hence the term bond servant, for the remainder of their life. Generally speaking, people did not sell themselves to one master unless they recognized that that master was a good master. You wouldn't want to look over and see somebody who was especially cruel and say, yeah, that looks like something that I'd like to sign up for for the rest of my life. Generally speaking, bond servants were men of substance and reputation that were usually of a better character uh, than some of the other masters. But either way, bond servants, Paul is now addressing those who find themselves in the place of being sold into this level of servitude. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, as he's making the statement, that term sincerity comes up, and uh, we know that that has the uh, root understanding of uh, being without wax. The uh, potters of the day would fashion some vessel, and then when they put it in the kiln to fire it so that it would be hardened, uh, they would sometimes crack. And so there was a practice amongst some of the dishonest potters because you're losing all the work you put into it and the raw materials, uh, which were difficult to come, you know, not as easy as they are today to come by. And uh, so they would uh, be dishonest and they would mix clay and wax together and pack it into the crack and uh, then smooth it over, sometimes even paint it and sell it. So you're not going to be aware that the, the vessel you bought is broken until uh, you put it under stress. You know, either, you know, physical jarring of some kind is going to cause that break to give way or heat was one of the most common things. Pour hot liquid into it, melts the wax. Now you suddenly realize this thing is junk. And so potters would give their uh, wares that stamp of sincerity, meaning without wax. And, uh, you know, the idea that it was going to endure under strain and under uh, trial and testing. So here, Paul is saying, you know, as far as being a believer and being a bond servant, you need to serve those masters without any falsehood. 
in fear of God as though you were serving Christ. You need to serve in that setting as though you were serving Christ. Um, the first times that I became aware of this, this understanding and this teachings was uh, I was a young Christian. And uh, I was just radically in love with Jesus and, you know, newly converted and just so zealous about every aspect of my life that uh, I, at the time I went to work this way, just doing everything at, at that level. Like I, I, you know, I go to work and like, you know, in my mind, I'm saying I'm punching in for Jesus. And I was stocking shelves at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I, I actually generated some animosity toward myself because this was such a motivating factor in my, you know, twenty-something-year-old life, and in my radical, insane heart, that, um, you know, for instance, the first place I was working is Sun Foods in Keene, New Hampshire, and um, because it's right on the border of uh, Massachusetts and Vermont, uh, it's it's a like a fifteen-minute ride over from Brattleboro, and like a twenty-minute ride up from Massachusetts, uh, tax-free New Hampshire. So people are literally coming up to Keene, New Hampshire and buying a month's worth of groceries because it's tax-free. And I mean, it was not uncommon uh, to see uh, people with freezers in the bed of their pickup truck that like the cord went around and was plugged in uh, inside the truck. And, and, you know, they're like loading all the stuff into a freezer to drive back home with it. So, we were a warehouse style uh, uh, grocery store, you know, uh, high class Sam's Club. And uh, everything went up on the shelves in whole cases, right? So you just put the case up on the shelf, you cut the top off the case, put the case up on the shelf, and then cut the face off the shelf and just like face everything out. But you put the whole box up on the shelf. So, like, if it's Campbell's soup, like 12 cases are going on the shelf at a time, right? So we had a 65 uh, case an hour mandatory count. When you go in uh, to stock this place, I stocked shelves 11 to 7. Uh, so when you go in, you've got to put 65 cases an hour up on the shelves. And, uh, boy, it, it was hard. You know, you got to know where everything goes and, where, you know, where everything is is in an aisle, and they just bring this giant, you know, like 10 foot tall pallet into the middle of your aisle. And you got to like work your way down through that thing and, you know, then go get the next one and bring that in. And just, I mean, it was a lot of work. So uh, at first, you know, case counts for me, first day or two were like 40, <laughs> you know, and they're like, you'll get it, man. You know, you finally get to the place where you actually achieve that minimum count, 65 cases an hour. And I'm every night I'm punching in like I'm punching in for Jesus. I'm not there for uh, Sun Foods. I'm not there for the paycheck. I'm there, I'm there for Jesus. I'm preaching to my coworkers and I'm stocking shelves. So I'm there, I'm there working for Jesus. If this is how Jesus is gonna pay me, I'm here. I took this to heart. I'm here working for Jesus. So you know, 65 cases. Everybody's like, "Good job, man! You made it. You know, you're, you've achieved." the you know minimum case count. And I'm like, "Yeah, but you know, I'm here working for Jesus, so I want to do better." And 65 cases becomes, you know, 80 cases. And some of the top performers in that job were like, hey, man, you know, you've sort of achieved the inner ring of, <laughs> you know, case count guys. Like, there's only a few of us that are doing this. 
you know, when I got to 90 cases, like people were like, hey, take it easy, pal, you know, like making the rest of us look bad. I'm coming in early. I'm, you know, getting all jacked up, getting ready to go out, doing the work, you know, run in to have lunch, run back out to stock on shelves. I mean, I'm there working for Jesus. You know, when I got to 125 cases an hour, people were downright ticked off at me because I'm there outperforming all the other employees. People had it in for me. Uh, I'm not trying to say anything in regard to what I was doing there other than it other than this it freed me from all of the earthly parameters of employment I, I wasn't there upset about it's an 11 to 7 shift I'm working through the middle of the night I wasn't there upset about the fact that I was working in you know a warehouse grocery store I wasn't there upset about the fact that if I've got to hear Tom Petty one more time play that stupid song on this stupid PA system, I'm going to just lose my mind. You know what I'm saying? Learning to fly. If I got to hear that song one more time, it's just that that was literally, you know, listening to REM, you know, over and over. All the college students driving us crazy with this stupid music. All of that disappeared. Faded away. Why? Because I was showing up and I was working for Christ. I was literally in a place of oblivion. I, I was having a grand time. I, 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 my heart was not even in that place. I might as well have been in heaven. You know, at the time. I, I, I got to say that over the years, that's faded. And, and I have to take my heart and mind back there. You know, even in this ministry, I have to take my heart. What am I here for? You know, am I grumbling and complaining? Am I upset about this? Or am I upset about that? Or how this is going or how that's going? When I can actually get to the place where I am here, here's a bond servant. This person has sold themselves into slavery for the rest of their life. Think about how hopeless that could become. You know, there's no grand, you know, ideal for them of, you know, someday we're going to get a place on the lake and have our own boat. <laughs> None of that's even available, right? They're a bond servant. They belong to another human being for the rest of their life. And Paul is saying, you need to go at that as though you're there serving Christ. There's a great freedom in that. Look what he says. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God for them. Oh, hey, here comes the boss. Everybody look busy. That's what he's saying. You know, eye service, man pleasers. You know, that term sloughing off. <laughs> you know, just, just faking everything. You know, being a malingerer. Just hanging it out, you know, making it look like you're doing work when you're not doing anything. You're, there's zero performance, you know, a little bit of busyness so that if somebody were to walk in and catch you, you know, it would look like you were doing something when you were accomplishing nothing. Ah, oh, see, so you are at that point working for man. You are at that point working for the paycheck. You are at that point, in fact, working for sinfulness. 
if we're there working for Christ, then our whole heart is in it. You know, the, the great opportunity. I shared Jesus with everyone. And I can say that in, in absolute honesty. I shared Jesus with every one of my coworkers. I'm talking personal message, gospel message, salvation message, everything I could with every one of my coworkers in the two plus years that I was there. You know, there, there, there is no excuse for any of them not being a believer today. Uh, you know, I, I was dedicated to it for that fact. I'm here serving Jesus. This, this is the job Jesus has got me out. Okay, you know, if, if I just have to start, I had the whole store memorized. Literally, guys would come to me out of other aisles and be like, well, where's this go? Aisle seven, second shelf, it's about halfway down, you'll see it. Yeah. I could tell them without any question. The time I had been there, they, they did that with me. I memorized an aisle, get to where I could stop, you know, like knock my case count down by moving me to the other side of the store. You know, I drop down from like 120 and be somewhere down in the 80s until I'm back up in the, you know, I'm finishing that aisle out and going helping other guys finish out their aisles. Why? Because I'm there serving Christ. And I'm not there for the paycheck. I'm not, my, my whole motivation in walking through the door is to serve Jesus Christ. It isn't, it isn't the paycheck. It's not any other thing. That was the environment he had me in. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. You don't have to be a missionary, right? I, I love Keith Green. I listened to his music, grew up you know, as a young man, Christian home, hearing Keith Green's music. And he wrote that song uh, about how it should be the exception if we go. And he's talking about the missions field. And, uh, you know, Keith was a young guy. And uh, I guess somebody else that was there and knew him better um, could maybe explain a little better what he meant. But th the message of the song, I believe, was incorrect. Because Keith has basically become aware as a young Christian of the great need in the mission field. And he's saying to every Christian believer, we should all be on the mission field and it should only be the exception if you don't go. And I can say that's wrong. And I have to explain that what I mean is that we should all be on the mission field no matter where we're at. You know, what environment are you in? That's your mission field. You know, if, if the Lord is going to send you to India, if the Lord is going to send you to China or some other place, some other foreign land, great. Great, but, it, but it, it isn't the attitude like those are the only real dedicated Christians are the ones that go to the mission field, right? The real dedicated Christian opens his mouth no matter where he's at. That, that's the believer. This is the bond servant right here. Serve Christ where you are. Uh, it is a very strong message that's uh, portrayed right here. And we'll close uh, with verse 9. And you, masters, be the same things to that, do the same things rather uh, uh, to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So, power, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, you, you give us an ounce of authority and we lose our minds. And, you know, our sinfulness is just so disgusting. 
If we if we get a moment to have authority over another person, we turn that right into corruption without Christ. Without Christ, nice a person as we are, the minute that we are given authority over another human being, we we end up using that authority in an ungodly way. We we need to be submit if we're going to have the proper uh, respect and position. In understanding authority, we need to have that very thing in mind right there. Uh, that number one, we all have a master in heaven. And number two, God doesn't show any partiality. Uh, so so where we are, what we're doing, and how we treat other people, the Lord takes great notice of that. He takes great notice of how we behave. I think that you know the great example of the proper understanding of this is that centurion who comes to Jesus and says, I also am a man under authority. You say the word, and I know it will be so, because I say the word, and it's so with the men that serve underneath me. Uh, I'm a position under authority, he says. He, he doesn't put himself in a place that's over others. He says, I'm in there. I'm, I'm under authority. I have to submit to it. It's a great example of, of recognizing that we, whatever position of power we may have, need to make sure we have a very humble attitude about it because we're going to have to answer to our king someday. So that's the time we have. We'll, we'll pick up at verse uh, 10 next week. Why don't we pray and then we'll fellowship for a while. Father, I thank you for your love and your graciousness and ask that you would work in our hearts and minds with the things that we read and studied here this evening, that your spirit would cause them to take root and be fruitful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.